0: friends and welcome to episode 14 of Dermosphere, the podcast by dermatologists, for dermatologists and for the dermatologically curious. We come out every fortnight with some updates that are floating around in the Dermosphere right now to help you with your clinical practice of dermatology. I am one of your hosts. My name is Luke Johnson. I'm a pediatric dermatologist and general dermatologist at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. And of course, joining me on the line is my good friend and colleague...
1: This is Michelle Tarbox.
0: I am an assistant professor of dermatology and dermatopathology
1: at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in beautiful sunny Lubbock, Texas.
0: And in addition to the two of us, every so often, some other... Um, luminary will poke their head into our podcast. So last time in episode 13, we had a visit from Dr. Sarah Aaron, who talked to us about the scoring system that her team developed to identify the risk level of transplant patients in regards to skin cancer and an app that they created so that you can download it and easily estimate your patient's risk of skin cancer and therefore determine when they first need their skin screening after a transplant. Everyone loves an easy button. I do. I very much love easy buttons. And stay tuned all the way to the end of this episode. We're going to have another dermatology luminary joining us, but for now, you get luminary Michelle Tarbox and also <laughs> me. And oh. I, Michelle has our first article today.
1: That is correct. So we're bringing you an article that is a little bit older, but I think very, very important. And it is also not necessarily any of our core literature, so I want to make sure everybody's aware of this development. So this is actually an article out of the Aesthetic Surgery Journal, which is the journal for the American Society for Aesthetic Plastic Surgery, and its chief author is himself a plastic surgeon. It is entitled New High-Dose Pulsed Hyaluronidase Protocol for Hyaluronic Acid Filler Vascular Adverse Events. And this was recently identified as a very important article for everybody to have knowledge of in the hopefully unnecessary, but always dreaded side effect of fillers which can occur anytime they're used in high volume, which is intra-articular, sorry, intraarterial arterial injection. So this uh, article was written to update people on the author's protocols that were used to treat acute filler-related vascular events. Um, previous treatment protocols had involved a lot of different treatment modalities, including nitropaste and hyperbaric oxygen. But in the author's and in others' experiences, these had not been necessarily the most helpful interventions. And this is a publication detailing the use of high-dose pulsed hyaluronidase to help treat vascular embolic events with hyaluronic acid fillers. And it really rests on a few chief thoughts, one of them being that while we don't know what the optimal volume and frequency for hyaluronidase dosing is in the event of a intravascular injection of hyaluronidase. Repeat high-dose injection tends to lower the significant adverse outcomes that can occur from this particular complication of filler treatment. So, of course, avoidance of complication is the best strategy, utilizing careful injection technique, aspirating before you inject, injecting at low pressure, and utilizing small aliquots of filler, at one time or in one treatment are all things that might be employed to help reduce the risk of interarterial injection. However, the more filler you inject, the more risk you're at, and eventually it is possible that you will have to deal with this side effect of filler treatment.
0: The Before old protocols... reading this article, my protocol was to scream in fear and then probably call you. <laughs>
1: Well, hopefully, I would give you the right answer, but hopefully, we can save people from having to scream in fear and call mentors and give them a handy dandy way to know what to do in the event of an emergency. I think it's very useful to have protocols that you are aware of and you are accustomed to, and you know what to do when things are at their best. So, when things are at their worst, you can target that knowledge and go for it. That's why things such as BLS are so useful because it's repetition and it's something you've practiced and trained to do the same way over and over again. So when you're in an emergency situation and thinking clearly becomes difficult, you can go back to that protocol and know with confidence that you're doing the right thing.
0: BLS being basic life support, I suppose.
1: Basic life support, yes. I just had to renew my training and blow on a dummy. It was so much fun. But now if it happens and I'm at the mall or somebody and somebody passes out, I'll know what to do. So... Previously, the strategies were daily single treatment with hyaluronidase of 450 to 600 international units, along with other modalities such as nitro-based, hyperbaric oxygen massage, etc. The new protocol is strictly hyaluronidase only. And the dosing is based on the volume of ischemic tissue. You do hourly repeated dosing to maintain high concentrations of hyaluronidase throughout the ischemic zone. And the treatment is based on clinical determination of surface area, which you can observe by looking at skin color and adjusting for capillary refill. The author recommends utilizing an instrument such as, as he puts it, which I find very Funny, he uses a lot of interesting language in this. He's Canadian, I don't know if that has anything to do with that, but he says the non-business end of a pair of scissors. So the loops that you would put your fingers through and apply the pressure with the device so you can see the outline of the instrument and then count how long it takes for the capillary refill to occur compared to normal uninvolved skin. So this report is based on his experience as a consulting physician with several dozen cases over the past two years before he wrote this paper. And he felt that this new high-dose protocol gave superior results to the previous treatment, which would be less frequent use of less significant amounts of hyaluronidase, along with adjunct modalities such as the hyperbaric oxygen and the nitro paste. So the author makes some assumptions in the um, presentation of this protocol, which I think are reasonable assumptions, including that the pathology of filler-rated ischemia is due to arterial embolism of the filler, and that typically it occurs immediately at the time of filler treatment, although he does point out that there are some cases in the literature that occur several hours later, which might be related to filler moving downstream in a vessel and hitting a place where there's not enough collateral vessel circulation to accommodate the obstruction. So most filler occlusive events do occur at the time of treatment, and a perceptive tech- clinician will notice that there are color changes, perhaps pain, perhaps transient whitening of the skin that might indicate this vascular compromise. He heals that the solution is to flood the tissues containing the obstructed vessels with hyaluronidase in sufficient concentration for a sufficient length of time to relieve the hyaluronidase obstruction.
0: Makes We're- sense.
1: It totally makes sense to me as well. The delayed onset of filler complications, as he talks about, might be due to downstream migration of a embolized amount of filler and it might present a little bit later, but the majority of events occur at the time of treatment. Now, he talks about the natural history of vascular embolic events, which will be momentary blanching, which can last for a few seconds, proceeding through livido reticularis, lasting up, up to a couple of days, through to blisters, which typically occur on day three after the treatment, and then crusting, necrosis, and sloth, followed by slow healing by secondary intention, a process which may take six weeks or more. And if does not
0: give people the cosmetic results they were hoping for? It
1: does not, and in can cause some pretty significant scarring, which we hope to avoid utilizing this protocol. If untreated, usually about three days before the blisters appear on the skin, and that seems to be a relatively consistent finding in the author's experience, frank necrosis might not be evident for several days thereafter, usually after day six, but signs of ischemia are generally present right from the very beginning if you're being careful to watch for them. And he proposes that with appropriate treatment with the new high-dose pulsed hyaluronidase protocol, complete reversal of all the signs of ischemia and return to normal can be the goal of treatment. So instead of six weeks or more of slow healing by secondary attention, you can see complete resolution with no signs of secondary problems within three days of the event. with patient's usually just having a few bruises and typical injection site reactions because they're going to get stuck in the face a lot with a needle. So the diagnosis is clinical. He notes that there's not really a... You know, an imaging modality or something else that we're using. It's a perception of color, capillary refill time, and, you know, usually some kind of blanching. Now, sometimes blanching can be missed, and it can also be masked by the fact that a lot of our fillers contain lidocaine, although most of them do not also have epinephrine in them. Uh, modeled skin appearance, looking at such as livido reticularis, is almost always apparent, except in cases where there's severe bruising that, you know, impairs the perception of the livido reticularis, and capillary refill time is typically slow in areas of occlusion. So he likes the, those finger holes of the instrument with the non-business end of the scissors, which I really like. So in this newer protocol, he proposes that the outcomes can be superior. With the old protocol, typically in his experience, he would see some blistering, crusting, and mild scarring to moderate dyschromia, especially in patients of color. But with the high-dose pulsed uronidase treatment protocol, he's seeing return to normal tissue, which is really the goal in this particular circumstance. Um, this is called the hyaluronidase sort of flooding hypothesis, which he discusses later in the article, but basically that hyaluronic acid filler obstructed arteries need to be bathed in high concentrations of hyaluronidase for long enough periods of time to dissolve the filler, and that this concept has been illustrated by showing that the recommended dosage of hyaluronidase increases stepwise with the numbers of anatomic areas involved, and sort of the bellwether for this anatomic area is the one half of the upper lip which in his experience would require about 450 international units of hyaluronidase, which for his preparation is about three milliliters of hyaluronidase. He does note as a Canadian that they do not have commercially available hyaluronidase solution, at least at the time of this publication. And so he utilizes a compounded hyaluronidase with a dosing of 150 international units per milliliter. And, you know, we will have to adjust, of course, based off of what we have available to us at the time. Um, he does also say that we can just assume that all of the arteries in the ischemic area of the face are completely filled with hyaluronic acid filler. Now, obviously, this may not be the case. But if you treat with that presumption, you will be treating adequately and be helping to avoid the unwanted tissue side effects of scarring and model type of pigmentation and volume loss.
0: So reading the article, it looks like there's hyaluronidase is not a dangerous thing to be injecting into somebody. So it seems like it's hard to overdo it. So the idea is just to pump enough in that you're 100% sure that all of that filler has been dissolved, and then you're good.
1: And he addresses the concern that a lot of people have brought up when I've heard this discussed, which is, well, are you going to dissolve naturally occurring hyaluronidase? And the answer is yes, we are going to dissolve naturally occurring hyaluronidase. However, naturally tissue... occurring
0: hyaluronic acid.
1: Sorry, sorry, naturally occurring hyaluronic acid, my bad. Um, so the thing is that naturally occurring hyaluronic acid in normal human tissue is a dynamic substance. It doesn't just live there and squat. It moves back and forth. And we know this because when we were first trying to figure out how we could plump things back up, we figured out that we injected in pure hyaluronic, sorry, pure hyaluronic acid. It looked great that day, but by the next day it was gone because our tissue tends to maintain a balance with natural hyaluronic acid. Same thing happens in the reverse. So when you dissolve the naturally occurring hyaluronic acid with hyaluronidase when you're treating, injected, and modified hyaluronic acid, the naturally occurring hyaluronic acid temporarily does dissolve but it is typically replaced back to normal baseline levels for that patient. And he points out that the only time long-lasting effects have been seen using high, high higher-volume hyaluronidase have been in cases where there's an occult infection with inadequately drained abscesses or delayed treatment with the high-volume um, hyaluronidase. And so patients... So-
0: Don't blame the hyaluronidase.
1: Yeah, and and really patients aren't losing their own natural hyaluronidase because our ground substance, like most other parts of our body, are constantly changing and adjusting to things. But they have a balance and a homeostasis that they like to maintain. And we're altering that with modified hyaluronic acid, which is cross-linked or otherwise modified to help it persist in the tissue. So we're doing that intentionally with fillers. But when we get that accidentally into an artery or vein, usually an artery when there's compromise the solution is that we need to dissolve that as quickly as possible to avoid long-term sequela and we won't end up with tissue deficit based off of hyaluronic acid um, being dissolved that is natural to the tissue because it has a homeostasis and will restore itself so we don't need to freak out that we're going to destroy all their normal hyaluronic acid and they won't have any of their normal hyaluronic acid in that area it will come back and they so he does point
0: out that uh, dissolving the, your own hyaluronic acid allows the hyaluronic that you're injecting to diffuse away from the site a little bit more, which is mm-hmm. one of many reasons why he says you just have to keep putting more in. So he says put more in every hour until you're sure that it's better.
1: Exactly. And he does point out that... I kind of look at it as sort of the 3Ds of things that are affecting the concentration of the hyaluronidase in the tissue, which is obviously it is going to diffuse away from the area that you're trying to place it in. It can also be dissolved or it can be taken kind of apart by our natural enzymes that metabolize the hyaluronidase itself.
0: And hyaluronidase-ace, it, I guess.
1: I guess hyaluronidase-ace. Yeah, they, we didn't really like have a specific description of what's breaking the hyaluronidase itself down. But you know that is something that I think we need to think about. And the goal is really to maintain an adequate concentration of the hyaluronidase in the vessels, or, sorry, around the vessels that are containing the hyaluronic acid that we need to dissolve to allow for that dissolution to occur completely enough that they can be degraded to small enough particles where they're no longer obstructing essential arterial flow. And I think that that is a a very important thing to point out. And you're correct that he does mention, you know, several times throughout the article that um, really we're trying to fight these, these three processes that take the hyaluronidase away from the area we're really needing to treat. And that's why he feels that the pulsed treatment is beneficial. He also points out multiple times that the one hourly intervals is what has worked best for him. He does not say that that is necessarily the optimal interval or the optimal concentration. However, at this higher dose and higher frequency, he has noted that we have improved results and improved resolution of the injury with restoration to pretty much normal tissue. So we need to think about deactivation of the hyaluronidase, dilution of it, and we think about the fact that we need to maintain that concentration in the area that we're really trying to treat. Um, So what he does in his practice is he sort of bathes the involved ischemic area in this hyaluronic acid, in this hyaluronidase, in a dose that is dependent upon both the area involved as well as sometimes the thickness of the area involved, giving, of course, the caveat that we're dealing with some areas that have thicker tissue, such as on the zygoma or on the lateral cheek, versus thinner areas such as the glabella or the upper lip with the upper lip having maybe like 12 millimeters of thickness and the glabella having maybe 6 millimeters of thickness, but the zygoma or cheek tissue maybe having 25 millimeters of thickness, we have to think about different volumes and adjust accordingly.
0: Though he does emphasize that uh, this protocol is supposed to be kind of a no-brainer. You kind of guesstimate how much is in there based on like one half of somebody's upper cutaneous lip needing Mm -hmm. 450 IUs of hyaluronidase, Mm -hmm. and then you just shove that amount into the tissue and mm-hmm. do that every hour
1: the nose seemed to be a little bit of an exception because he used six milliliters for the nose i guess depending on the size of the person's nose some people's noses might be significantly bigger than a half of their upper lip but some people's are similar
0: well um, he I says think, that uh, if the upper lip and the nose are involved he uses six mls
1: and and i think that there are a lot of sort of
0: um ended sort
1: of dead-ended vessels on the nose when the nose can be kind of a treacherous area with with filler so you have to be a little bit cautious about that but I really like an analogy that he uses which is we're basically trying to top up a leaky, con- a leaky container so you're trying to keep a constant volume of, of something in a leaky container but the container keeps leaking back out through this, you know, dilution, diffusion, and deactivation of the hyaluronidase. And so that's why you continue to top up the um, amount that you're dealing with in the tissue. He goes a little bit into the mechanics of vascular emboli through filler and some of the proposed pathomechanisms for the occlusion. Uh, And then he sort of deconstructs some of the arguments that suggest that the filler is not actually in the vessels, which include external compression of arteries, which has been posited as a possibility, but has not been able to be recreated in laboratory animals. He sort of liken this to stepping on a garden hose while you're watering your flowers and you obstruct the flow of fluid through the hose. Some people have posited that too much deposition of filler around a vascular structure might externally compress that vessel. And that the true occlusion is not happening inside the artery, but is happening from around it. But again, that has not been supported in animal experimental models. And then he also speaks to the possibility of vascular spasm. However, with the exception of sort of reimplanted structures when you're doing revascularization surgeries, such as I, I believe vascular surgeons would do, arterial spasm is usually not long enough to create actual tissue ischemia. So he sort of debunks that idea and really proposes that the majority of these things are happening through... Filler that has gotten into the vessel. Now he does propose another mechanism by which filler can get into a vascular lumen which sort of freaks me out a little bit, which is when you're treating scarred tissue, and you put a needle or cannula through a vessel and everything around the deposited filler that you place is scar, the path of least resistance might actually be into the vessel for that filler that is otherwise surrounded by scar. And so you have to use extreme caution when you're treating scarred areas or potentially use other treatment modalities and spare the hyaluronic acid for non-scarred areas, which I think is a very interesting idea. And as a person who has a personal interest in scar revision, something that gave me a lot of food for thought. Um, I think that another really interesting point he brings forward is that, you know, Occam's razor would sort of suggest that, you know, when we have filler kind of going through the vessels and we might have, you know, delayed ischemia, that the filler might be trapped at a bifurcation point and then dislodges itself. You know, some people might feel like that's not what's actually happening, but I think that it actually could—that actually could be an ex- a good explanation for what's occurring. Uh, another nice argument that he puts forward that we don't really think to be externally compressing these arteries, but we are typically having filler in the arteries, is that we have experience with relatively significant external pressure on vascular structures with tissue expanders and that those do not typically cause skin necrosis. So we are really probably dealing with filler in the lumen. Um, He does kind of point to evidence, which I've also seen discussed elsewhere, that you don't really need to try to recanalize the artery for a lot of reasons. One of them being it's very difficult to recanalize the artery or also then damaging the artery wall potentially. Um, That's kind of, a very difficult shot thing to do. One speaker I heard in another meeting said, you're really just not that good. Even though you got it in that artery one time, the likelihood you're going to be able to get it in there a second time is not high. But he also makes a great argument that even if you are in the exact vessel and you're trying to dissolve the filler, you only have the surface area of where you've got the hyaluronidase up against the filler bolus, which is much smaller than the circumferential distribution of the hyaluronidase around the vessel as it diffuses through the vessel wall. So really this bathing approach is significantly more likely to be successful. So you don't need to waste time and energy trying to recantilate the vessel. You just need to bathe the area in a high concentration of hyaluronidase. He points out that really we seem to have everything to gain and very little to lose by applying the strategy. I think the cost of the hyaluronidase might be a factor that plays a role in some people's mind. But when you're dealing with vascular compromise and the potential downstream side effects of that, I think that you have to take that as the cost of doing business to have enough hyaluronidase on hand to deal with these kinds of complications. Also, you might network with other dermatologists or plastic surgeons in your area to have sort of a safety net of, I've got hyaluronidase if you need hyaluronidase, sort of the borrow a cup of sugar model if you've got good neighbors. Um, Again, we talked about the kind of dose of hyaluronidase he has available to him in Canada, which might be different than in the U.S., and then he specifically touches on the topic of central retinal artery occlusion. And points to a study in rhesus monkeys, which showed that there are strict time limitations to how much hypoxia the retina can tolerate, with that being about 97 minutes. So, you know, you have about an hour and a half free of permanent damage to the retina in the case of central retinal artery occlusion. Um, he also addresses the kind of discussion about retrobulbar injection of hyaluronidase in a patient who's had central retinal artery um exposure to hyaluronic acid in the vascular lumen and has kind of pointed out that this is a difficult technique. A lot of people um, might have difficulty mastering it. He himself has been trained to do it on a cadaver. And he actually discusses the way that the technique is performed and that it is relatively simple where basically you use a 25 gauge, one and a half inch long needle, the orbits approach through the lower lateral eyelid below the campus and the needle tip is directed slightly upwards and temporally or laterally, then the needle tip is just walked along the lateral orbital wall until it's about two thirds to three quarters of the way in. And then there's a slight depression, which correlates with the area in which you could inject about three cc's of hyaluronidase slowly.
0: Right. So you're sticking this needle in between somebody's globe and their bone. uh, I feel like most dermatologists are not super comfortable with that. I
1: don't feel like that would be something I would want to do. So, of course, you know, the best medicine is to avoid having to do that. Uh, But he does kind of describe that. And I think it's nice to have sort of a no-nonsense description of that in the literature. I will say that, you know, I would say that this author is a pretty no-nonsense guy. I like his writing. Style. So the rule of thumb he presents is using the lip, nose, and forehead as dose multipliers. The standard dose is about 500 international units per area. For a single region, he recommends 500 international units every hour until the ischemia is resolved. For two hours, it would be 1,000 international units, um, 1,500 for three areas, and so on and so forth. He recommends keeping the patient in clinic for observation and treating every 60 to 90 minutes until normal skin color returns most will resolve after three or four treatment sessions if they're not getting better after eight or nine treatments um then you might have other considerations and he points out also people can get weary the patient can, ex- can get exhausted, the clinician can get exhausted. If you start this early on enough, you can send the patient home overnight to return for more treatment early in the day, as a lot of the tissue is relatively resistant to hypoxia in the skin versus the retina. And so long as the treatment's completed within 72 hours, about three days of the onset of ischemia, success is common. And so I think it's really nice to have this no-nonsense approach to how to treat these complications that are hopefully rare and that we, of course, all try to use good technique to avoid.
0: He does say, as far as the retina goes, that uh, there's actually no reports of this being successful. So in addition to not wanting to stick a needle into somebody's eyeball, you might just not be able to help them. And if they're going to lose their vision, then unfortunately they are. So don't inject the central retinal artery.
1: I don't think that that's something I'd feel comfortable doing either.
0: Uh, the author here, by the way, was Claudio DiLorenzi. and yes. he must be super into this because the email he lists is fillercomplication at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. And as far as potential conflicts of interest, he is the medical director for Allergan Canada and Mertz Canada. So mm-hmm. I don't think either of those places produce hyaluronidase. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> but... well, his, his source, of course, is this compounded hyaluronidase, um, and he practices
0: in Toronto, Canada. Seems like an interesting person. Wrote a good article. So thank you, Dr. DeLorenzi. I'm going to move on and talk about medical overuse. So the author or the title here is A State-of-the-Art Review Highlighting Medical Overuse in Dermatology, 2017 to 2018, a Systematic Review. And the authors include, I apologize in advance for mispronouncing your names, everybody, Ashley Pornamdari, Elizabeth Kachenko, and the senior author is Arash Mostigini. And this is out of JAMA Dermatology. So, and this is a group out of Harvard and Brigham and Women's Mass General. That whole conglomeration. So these guys reviewed recent literature in 2017 and 2018, only those two years, for medical overuse in dermatology, and they settled on 10 articles that they thought were the most important. They refer to this several times as a state-of-the-art review. I admit I'm uh, not super clear what makes it state-of-the-art as opposed to any other kind of review, but they have a lot of good information in here, so buckle up. (laughs) So uh, these 10 articles that they identified with a scoring system that highlights the most important aspects of medical overuse in dermatology, uh, the themes that arise at least more than once include cellulitis misdiagnosis, re-excision of dysplastic nevi, and laboratory monitoring for medication adverse events. And as far as medical overuse, they define that as any intervention in which the potential for harms, including physical, psychological, and financial, exceed the benefits. I feel like when we talk about medical overuse, often we're also thinking specifically about financial harms more than we do in a lot of other cases. Mm -hmm. So as far as cellulitis goes, it's kind of a big deal. So there's 3 million ED visits every year for cellulitis in the U.S. 3 million, that's a lot. So Mm -hmm. misdiagnosis which is fairly common in cellulitis, leads to 30,000 unnecessary hospitalizations every year, $515 million of unnecessary spending, and unnecessary antibiotic usage for people who don't need the antibiotics because they don't really have cellulitis, which causes an estimated 5,000 cases of C. diff Mm -hmm. and six cases of anaphylaxis every year, and presumably drives antibiotic resistance, so they didn't mention that specifically. So what's to be done about all of this? Well, there were a couple trials I noticed uh, that, you know, that they mentioned here. And I noticed that both of those trials happened to be done at Brigham and Women's, Mm -hmm. each with between 100 and 200 patients, um, wherein early, within 24-hour, dermatology consultation was a good idea. So the reason it was a good idea is because it showed high misdiagnosis rates, 30% or more, that could then be avoided with the dermatology consultation. And then decreased antibiotic use and decreased hospital stays, of an average of you know two fewer hospital days. And then there were no adverse outcomes from this thing. None of the people who the dermatologist said, this isn't cellulitis, it's stasis dermatitis or whatever. You can send them home. And then they went home. None of those patients actually ended up having cellulitis and came back in horrible sepsis or anything like that. So it was all good for everybody though I don't know if every dermatologist wants to be consulted about every possible case of cellulitis that walks into the emergency room. So there's probably some kind of balance. I remember when I was an intern, there was a controversy at the local VA where um, there was like some kind of mycobacteria in the water or something and people got pneumonia and it was this big political deal. And then after that, the hospital enacted a policy that every case of suspected pneumonia had to have an infectious disease consultation and all the infectious disease doctors spent a lot of time rolling their eyes about that. So I'm not sure if the solution is to have a mandatory dermatology consultation as required thing, but we can probably do better. And, uh, I wanted to mention one of my favorite articles ever, um, about one way we might be able to do better without needing to necessarily consult a dermatologist all the time, which was an article from 2017 uh, creating what they call the ALT70 ALT70 model to predict the likelihood that what you think is lower extremity cellulitis actually is lower extremity cellulitis. And the senior author on this paper from 2017 is actually the same author who's the senior author on um, this current article about medical overuse. Uh, So the ALT-70 model is really designed for like emergency room physicians and you get scoring systems. It's a scoring system. You get three points if it's asymmetric. What you think is cellulitis is asymmetric. You get two points if you're age 70 or over. You get one point if your white blood cell count is 10 or higher. And you get one point if your heart rate is 90 or higher. And then they say if this score is five, six, or seven. You're probably right at cellulitis. Go ahead and treat. If it's three or four, not really sure, consider talking to a dermatologist. And if it's one or two, you know what? It's probably not cellulitis. Think again. Uh, maybe call a dermatologist or somebody if you need to. Um, that's for lower extremity cellulitis in particular. But I really enjoyed that article back in the day. I still like it. And that group has done some other research showing that their model. Um, stays valid in various other situations as well, other than just immediately at the emergency room. So check that one out, and we should tell our ED colleagues about it. So that's the story with cellulitis. High misdiagnosis Mm -hmm. rates, dermatologists can help. Another big deal was dysplastic nevi. So should we be re-excising dysplastic nevi? Silence. (laughs) Silence is the appropriate answer. (laughs) I usually tell patients, like, this is a gray area of dermatology. We don't really know. Sometimes we like to play it on the safe side and remove it. If we didn't remove it, probably nothing would happen. Uh, But there were a couple studies in 2017 to 2018 that looked into this a little bit more. So there was a systematic review of 2,700 dysplastic nevi. And I should say, when we say dysplastic nevi, we're talking about histologically dysplastic, not just looks funny to your eyeballs. Mm -hmm. So 2,700 dysplastic nevi that showed... Um, had an observation group and a re-excision group, and the same number of biopsy site melanomas showed up in both groups, 0.4% one way or another. So re-excising did not reduce the risk of melanoma showing up right there. There was also a retro... So in addition, another study, a retrospective cohort study of 467 moderately dysplastic nevi that was followed for seven years, and no melanomas showed up at all at the sites of those 467 military plastic nevi that were just followed however a terrifying 23% of those patients developed melanoma somewhere else on their bodies which is a large number um, and the fact chances of you getting melanoma were associated with having a history of a, another melanoma the odds ratio was almost 12 in that case and having a history of couple dysplastic nevi that were biopsied. The odds ratio was 2.6. So I think the upshot there is that perhaps you don't need to re-excise these dysplastic nevi because you wouldn't be preventing melanoma at that location, but you should be real careful with people who have two or more dysplastic nevi because they're at an increased risk of melanoma. (laughs) And finally, there was another study. It was a retrospective study of 451 severely dysplastic nevi. No melanoma was observed in the observed cohort of patients, which is about 70% of them, and about 30% of those patients ha- did undergo reexcision. And when the dermatopathologist looked at the re-excised tissue specimens, 0.4% of them were called melanoma rather than severely dysplastic levi. So 0.4% is not a lot, and the people who were not re-excised did not develop melanoma, but there could have been some bias there because it wasn't a randomized thing, it was retrospective. And finally, they point out that the pigmented lesion subcommittee, um, which I think is part of the American Academy of Dermatology, 2015 recommendations say you should consider observation for dysplastic nevi with moderate atypia, and they do recommend re-excision for severe atypia with positive margins. Mm -hmm. Michelle. So I I think
1: that um, a lot of this reflects the still incomplete information we can obtain through routine histology alone. So We are, as pathologists, looking at a snapshot in a section of a biological process and doing our best through our pooled and collective training and knowledge to sort of try to divinate the future behavior of this lesion, whether it's going to be benign or malignant. As we get better techniques molecularly, I feel like we're going to be able to give more definitive answers about this. There are certainly cases where it's very clear-cut and you're like, that's a nevus, this other thing's a melanoma. But there's this infuriating gray zone where it's difficult to tell. And it isn't that something's kind of impossible to tell apart. It's just that we might not necessarily have the technology that allows us to do it with certainty. So I think that a lot of this overtreatment reflects a level of discomfort with the degree of certainty we have with histopathologic diagnosis. I think in some ways there's also a level of patient discomfort at play as well when we tell the patient you've got a lesion, it's not really normal, part of it's still there, we're going to leave it. You know, some people feel less comfortable with that than others. So I'm hoping as we move towards more certainty in diagnosis that we can kind of provide a little bit more clarity in terms of treatment recommendations. I also do feel that, and I know personally, as a pathologist, I'm a little bit more uncomfortable when I know there's lesion left behind versus where it looks as if the lesion has been completely removed. And now I know some of that certainty is sort of a uh, false sense of security because we really only look at about two percent of the margin on routinely processed histologic specimens and you know how the specimen got grossed can be just as important as how the specimen was obtained. Um, In my practice, I do generally try to train people to, if you think it's worrisome enough to remove, try to actually remove it. Sometimes people try to stuff uh, melanocytic neoplasms into punches that are barely large enough, or they try to kind of just barely shave it to minimize the scar, but the difference of a couple of millimeters doesn't really tend to make a huge difference in terms of final cosmesis, but might make a big difference in terms of the final read.
0: I also wondered if one person's moderately atypia was another person's severely atypia.
1: There's definitely variation between pathologists and inter-rater sort of, or inter-observer kind of uniformity is a variable that is measured sometimes in studies and is often distressingly Hi. So, you know, a lot of times what one person might call moderate, another person would call severe, and another person might just call it an architecturally atypical nevus. So everybody's got a different bellwether, which is also a challenge. And as we struggle for uniformity in dermatopathology, we have to remember that it is kind of like herding cats. With dermatopathologists speaking as one, myself, I know we're a challenging group, but I know that our working groups are doing some good um, efforts to try to help improve
0: our uniformity and give us more uniform recommendations. So is the upcoming movie Cats about dermatopathologists? (laughs) It's about time they got some play in Hollywood.
1: It does definitely fall into the uncanny valley, and I've met some dermatopathologists that might fit that description too, so we'll see.
0: (laughs) So in terms of laboratory monitoring and medical overuse, so they talk about terbinafine in this article and also isotretinoin. So terbinafine, as most of us know, can cause drug-induced liver injury, but no evidence says that lab monitoring can detect it And 1% of patients on terbinafine develop transient transaminitis without progressing to drug-induced liver injury, which I did not know. And I also did not know that the FDA no longer recommends screening people on terbinafine. They report on a case uh, that it was a systematic review of 69 cases of terbinafine-induced drug-induced liver injury. None of those cases were detected with lab screening. And the patients had symptoms. So in decreasing order of frequency, the patients had jaundice, flu-like symptoms, dark urine, and pruritus. So the take-home point is that drug-induced liver, liver injury causes symptoms that are clinically apparent, and it does not cause laboratory abnormalities that you can detect you know, prior to it happening. So probably, based on this information, we shouldn't be checking people's liver labs. We should just be telling them if you start looking yellow, give us a call or go to the emergency room.
1: That sounds like a a pretty decent plan. I think that sometimes knowing if lab tests are abnormal before you start the drug might be more prudent and and something to look into more than um, you know necessarily the longitudinal monitoring without the liver symptoms um uh, because it can be difficult to know if somebody's got like chronic liver disease, although again, hopefully they would have some kind of appearance uh, based off of their clinical presentation.
0: Yeah, I usually don't check labs unless people have obvious comorbidities or something like that.
1: Yeah, I think like if they're telling you, oh, you know, what I I actually often use clinically is I tell patients, while you're on this medicine, we think it's better for you not to drink. Based off of their reaction to that statement, sometimes it tells me a lot about their drinking habits and whether or not I should be asking more questions.
0: Uh, Don't Tito's and Tan, remember. (laughs) Don't Tito's and Tan and don't Tito's and terbenafine. Isotretinoin. So can it cause pancreatitis? I suppose it can, but not very often. So they quote a systematic review that showed 11 reported cases of isotretinoin-associated pancreatitis, seven of which were idiosyncratic, meaning not associated with high levels of triglycerides, and four that were associated with hypertriglyceridemia. So their triglyceride levels were 1,000 or more. So the first take-home point is that Isotretinoin-induced pancreatitis is exceedingly rare, 11 cases reported, and there's lots of people on isotretinoin, and most of those cases didn't have anything to do with triglycerides, so why are we bothering checking people's triglycerides? In addition, most of those cases were mild and transient cases of pancreatitis, and all the reported cases of isotretinoin-induced pancreatitis have been in patients 30 years or older. So I have been progressively decreasing the number of labs I do for my isotretinoin patients, and I think that based on this, I will continue to reduce them.
1: Mm -hmm. I think that that generally holds in keeping with what I see clinically, too, is that the lab variations that mean something usually are happening in older patients because as we get older, our bodies have a little harder time with more difficult drugs, and that I'm usually a little bit more gentle in terms of dosing with my older patients as
0: well. By older, you mean 30 or more?
1: For Accutane, that is older.
0: Making me feel old. <laughs> right. um, and then they talk about three other areas that I'll just touch on real briefly. So they talk about melanoma. Um, one study that said sentinel lymph node biopsy doesn't provide valuable info beyond what the Breslow depth provides. We've touched on that somewhat controversial topic a couple times in this podcast, so I uh, don't really want to belabor it here, but there's certainly people on both sides who feel very strongly. They also talk about one study about cyclosporin for SJS and TEN. So one study showed that it doesn't help in, in SJS and TEN and might in fact cause kidney injury. I admit I'm not convinced. I feel like the weight of evidence is still in favor of cyclosporin. And also a big thank you to the Association for Dermatologic Hospitalists who are currently consulting and multi currently performing a multi-center study where they compare cyclosporin, tannercepts, I think steroids, I think IVIG and maybe just plain old supportive care for SJS to see what's better. So hopefully we'll have an answer to that question sometime in the next few years. And they finally talk about the overuse of opioids. Dermatologists don't prescribe a lot of opioids, um, but more people in Southern states do than those in Northern states. So (laughs) the implication is those of you hanging around Michelle in Texas um, should maybe think twice before you go to opioids and remember to emphasize non opioid treatment of especially post-procedure pain for dermatology.
1: There does seem to be some genetic variability as to how addictable individual people are, and there is some literature to suggest that for a certain subset of people with certain genetics, even a few days of an opioid prescription might
0: be enough to create dependence. And so we do need to be cautious as we treat these patients. So that's a lot of high-value content out of this group, so thanks, thanks to these authors. I think I'll be uh, not excising as many dysplastic nevi, not rolling my eyes when I get consulted for cellulitis, <laughs> not laboratory monitoring so often, etc. So our next
1: article um, also kind of touches on how we best care for patients in the most careful and cost-effective way. It is a meta-analysis of the influence of partial biopsy of primary melanoma on disease recurrence in patient survival. And so the authors are um, E. Moscarella, uh, R. Pampena, G. Palmi- Palmiati, uh, D. Bonamonte, G. Bronicasio, and V. Piccolo, C. Longo, and G. Argenziano. As you may have guessed from the names, many of these people are in Italy. So we're using the um, University of Campania in Naples, Italy, the Centro Oncologico de Alta Tecnologia <laughs> Diagnostica. I'm going to stop. Um, in Reggio. Italy, Valley, thanks in, you. Yes. Italy thanks me for stopping butchering their names. Uh, This is uh, published in the Journal of the European Academy of Dermatology and Venereology this year, and it looks to see if complete surgical excision versus partial biopsy alters the rates specifically of um, recurrence-free survival as well as melanoma-related or disease-related mortality. So they know that sometimes we do partial biopsy, especially of large lesions or lesions in cosmetically sensitive areas, but wanted to determine if this is affecting the patient's outcome. So this is a meta-analysis on the influence of biopsy type on primary melanoma with respect to recurrence-free survival and melanoma-related survival. What they did was they looked at clinical trials, observational cohort studies, and case-control studies, and looked at cases that uh, looked at studies that reported the absolute number of recurrences and/or melanoma-related deaths in patients who had undergone either partial or excisional biopsy. In this meta-analysis, they included five studies. I always find it interesting to see how hard it is to find studies to include in a meta-analysis. So they started off with two of the authors extracting all the data and looking at. 573 studies after they excluded duplicates that they found for Medline, Embase, and Cochrane. They excluded some based upon abstract and title. They had 10 papers that they thought were eligible. They excluded five because they didn't have absolute values or they didn't have homogeneous enough groups to relative to Breslow thickness or one study was excluded because it had the same population as another study and they ended up with five papers with a cumulative 300, sorry, 3,249 patients. Um, 1,121 of them had had a partial biopsy, and 2,128 had had an excisional
0: biopsy. What does it mean to have a partial biopsy, Michelle?
1: So as a pathologist, this is something that I sit on both sides of because my clinician self looks at the patient in front of me, especially if the lesion is in a cosmetically sensitive area and is relatively large, and says, wow, I don't want to give this nice person a huge scar. If I'm not certain, that's a melanoma. And also a large excision on the face is kind of overwhelming. And then the pathologist in me kind of argues with the clinician and says, I want all of the lesion to look at, please. I can make a better determination with the entire lesion.
0: There's so also... you're like that scene from uh, Lord of the Rings where yeah, one Yeah, I'm of talking to myself, he like, golem... wants
1: the tissue. And then on the other side, I'm like, but we don't want to scar the precious. You know, so we have to figure out how to balance all of that. So... As I said, having this internal psychotic monologue with myself, or I suppose, is it a monologue or a dialogue if you're speaking to yourself? I digress. Um, We're trying to figure out how to do right by the patient, correct? So they wanted to address this issue and try to help us determine how to best practice. Um, So they wanted to look about also the possible negative impact of prognosis um, on partial excision of melanoma with the idea that non-excisional biopsies, such as punches or shaves, could underestimate tumor thickness. You also could end up theoretically with facilitation of tumor spread through um, deposition of the melanoma cells in the subcutaneous tissue or blood vessels, which might worsen patients' prognosis. Now, tumor seeding has been shown in both needle and laparoscopic tracts for other kinds of cancers, such as breast and abdominal cancer or with mesothelioma. Importantly, this has never been demonstrated with melanoma. It's been theorized, but it's never been demonstrated. I remember as a resident being taught when we're numbing, for example, for a melanoma excision, to numb in sort of a ring block and never penetrate through the lesion because of this theoretical concern that you don't want to microscopically seed the tumor cells. However, this really hasn't been demonstrated with melanoma cells. Um, so they really wanted to see... How are we going to best serve our patients here? They wrote this study in accordance with MOOSE, which is meta-analysis of observational studies in epidemiology proposal, and PRISMA, which is preferred reporting items for systematic reviews and meta-analysis. So that's a little bit of
0: statistical trivia for those of you who are statistical gurus. So this um, they, is a PRISMATIC MOOSE study. A PRISMATIC
1: MOOSE, yes. It's very, very psychedelic MOOSE, maybe a little bit of a hippie. Um, and we wanted to look also at the quality of observational studies, which were evaluated using the Newcastle-Ottawa scale that we've addressed in a previous episode of the podcast. We talked about their selection process that they went through to get the articles that they that they actually assessed. And the long and short of it is that through their assessment, while there was a trend towards a improved recurrence-free survival and a improved melanoma related survi- uh, survival or decreased mortality specifically for melanoma in the excisional group versus the partial biopsy group this did not really reach statistical significance now it is important to demonstrate how that's all determined and they present this data in something called a forest plot If you're not familiar with the forest plot, I guarantee you've seen one. These are also called blobograms, and it's basically where they have the studies listed usually in the order in which they were done, so in chronological order with the oldest one at the top and the newest one near the bottom. On the bottom, they have whatever measure they're using frequently, it's odds ratio, and then on the right side, usually they have a quantification numerically. And you're seeing a representation um, usually with some kind of shape. So, you know, I'm showing luke this, I can't show you guys this, but some kind of shape, a square, a diamond, a octagon to indicate which trial you're referring to, and then a bar that goes through it, which shows the confidence interval. These can be helpful because they can show you if the odds ratio, for example, touches the number one, which would then mean, you know, an odds ratio of one means equivalent risk between groups. And so that is not statistically significant. The risk ratio here. Um, was 1.27 of having a recurrence for patients who had the, sorry, uh, 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 my, my apologies, uh, risk ratio of 1.27 in favor of excisional biopsy, reducing the risk for recurrence with a 95% confidence interval going from 0.97 to 1.67. So that touches one, kind of barely, but it touches one. So there's a trend towards better re- better recurrence-free survival with excisional biopsy, but it is not a statistically significant difference. Very similarly, there was an, a sort of trend towards an improvement or a decrease in the risk of dying from melanoma in the excisional biopsy versus partial biopsy, with that ratio being 1.5. But again, the confidence interval encompasses 1, with it going from 0.98 to 2.30. So obviously a trend towards improvement with excisional versus partial biopsy, but not statistically significant.
0: Yeah, I never bought the trend towards stuff. There's a reason we have 95% confidence intervals. This is true. Unless we have more studies that have more patients that move the Mm -hmm. needle, then basically there's no difference between partial and full biopsy.
1: And I think that that's what this paper really shows is that we don't really necessarily have As much data as we would like to have, but based on the available evidence, it can be appropriate under certain circumstances to do a partial biopsy. Now, when do we choose to do a partial biopsy, right? I choose to do a partial biopsy if it's in a very cosmetically sensitive area or if the lesion is huge. If the lesion is of a reasonable size and on the trunk, and I can get the whole thing in one fell swoop, I am getting that whole thing. Because as a pathologist, I would like to see the entire lesion. I know that context matters. I know that there's heterogeneity across lesions. I know that sometimes, if you have a sampling error, you can miss the part of the lesion that's the most malignant or the deepest. So as a pathologist, the favorite one of a pathologist is, more tissue, please. So we always want more tissue. So if you can have the whole thing, I want to have it. So usually the only time I pull that partial biopsy trigger is if the patient has the lesion in a cosmetically sensitive area. Often that's the head and the neck. The head and neck is treacherous when it comes to treating melanoma anyway because lymphatic drainage is complicated. Often presentation is delayed due to patient concern or sometimes physicians kind of hesitate to biopsy so the lesion might be more advanced at the time of biopsy. So I think that all of these things can come into play. But based off this available evidence, there isn't a good demonstration that partial biopsy is detrimental to the patient. However, it is always preferred if possible to do an excisional biopsy. And I certainly as a pathologist will echo that sentiment.
0: So I think in clinical practice, most of us try to often what we call saucerize these things. So Mm -hmm. use the shave tool and just sort of scoop under and around it rather than actually setting the patient up for a formal excision. Mm -hmm. Um, And then if you intentionally are doing, and so one of the Potential takeaways from this article is that if you try to do that, but you don't end up getting the whole thing, you're probably still all right, mm-hmm. though they don't really come out and say that in this article. Mm-hmm. And then the other is that if you are intentionally doing a partial biopsy for the reasons that you might suggest, then you're probably still on pretty firm ground.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think that that you know in, in clinical practice is reasonable. I think that the most important thing is getting the diagnosis and so especially if you have a patient that's a flight risk if you have access issues it's a lot better to get the tissue so you know what to do next than it is to potentially reschedule in a patient that might not show back up or you know somebody who has difficulty coming to the appointment based off of individual resources or mobility or age you know i think really the most important thing is get the diagnosis and you know if you can do it with a full excisional biopsy it's preferred but you know Mejor que nada, right? Better than nothing.
0: It sounded like there was a pack of wild dogs that just ran by your office, Michelle. There you was are an ex- in Lubbock, Texas. I right?
1: am in Lubbock, Texas. It wasn't coyotes, though.
0: It was some very excited nurses. I know what's going on. Somebody's got a birthday. It's fun. Oh, happy birthday to that person. <laughs> All right. Um, so I'm going to move on. So this is an article that's about babies. Oh, I love babies. Aww. It's about babies with scabies. Oh, <laughs> I don't don't love scabies so much, though I admit that part of me actually does like scabies. <laughs> so, so this is about ivermectin. So the title is Ivermectin Safety in Infants and Children Under 15 Kilograms Treated for Scabies, a Multicentric Observational Study. This is out of pediatric dermatology. Uh, and the authors include Dr. Levy and Dr. Borlevy. And the upshot of this whole thing is that ivermectin was safe in, in really little babies, even though it's not FDA approved for anybody who's under 15 kilograms. So the historical part of this article is kind of fun. So in the early 2010s, topical permethrin had not yet been approved in France, and there was a prolonged disruption in one of the commonly used alternatives, benzo- benzoate, which was used to treat scabies back then. And that, so because they didn't have the topical medicine, Doctors instead started using ivermectin more often in kids who are under 15 kilograms. And so the, this group aimed to figure out how that whole experience went. So they sent questionnaires to uh, all these physicians, part of the Society for Pediatric Dermatology in France, I believe, and asked about how it all went down. So they, according to the questionnaires that were returned, they described 170 patients. They weighed four kilograms or more. And they were age one month or more. So assuming the one month old was four kilograms, fairly hefty baby. It's uh, (laughs) close to nine pounds. And they had adverse events that occurred only in 4% of patients, and they were not severe. 85% of patients achieved a cure with the ivermectin, and they noted that factors significantly associated with achieving a cure were were an ivermectin dose of at least 200 micrograms per kilogram, which is the recommended dosing, and also receiving two doses that were less than 10 days apart. So most uh, people I trained with and me give people some kind of scabies treatment, and then we tell them to do it again a week later, that would work just fine for this. Um, the tab ivermectin doesn't come as a liquid you can drink, but these people crushed up the tablets and mixed them with food or liquid, so it's nice to know that that option is available. The adverse events that did occur were five cases of eczema flare-up, and then one episode each of diarrhea and vomiting. So, tough to say if that's even actually relevant to the ivermectin, especially at eczema flare-ups. You'd think their eczema would be flaring because there's bugs living in their skin. <laughs> but the authors do point out that, quote, itching is a listed adverse event of ivermectin, and they hypothesize that that could represent an inflammatory response to dead mite antigens. <laughs> so, the as far as the cured patients go, of them, so almost a quarter of them, still had sort of signs of scabies or post-scabietic issues when they came in for follow-up. So 10% of people had acropustulosis, so that's like acropustulosis of infancy that's thought in many cases to be a post-scabetic phenomenon. 9% of people who had had scabies had post-scabietic nodules, and then 4% had nonspecific lesions. Good news, Michelle. I've got a piece of pimpable content. You got I your glass it. today. Uh, let me see. Yes, I do. Hold on. Let me get that. And we'll find something to ding it with. Oh, that's terrible. Kind so of. this okay. is the mechanism of action of ivermectin. I like it. So ivermectin is a derivative of the avermectins, which are products of a bacteria called Streptomyces avermitilis, And then ivermectin targets the ion channels of cell membranes. And in invertebrates, like scabies bugs, glutamate-dependent chloride channels are act on nerve and muscle cells. And so by acting on these channels and those dependent on GABA, ivermectin inhibits neurotransmission, resulting in paralysis and death of the parasite. (laughs) Glutamate dependent chloride channels are absent in mammals, but we do have some that are GABA dependent, but those are only in the CNS. And presumably this medicine does not cross the blood brain barrier, at least in any kind of sufficient quantity to give us problems as evidenced by the fact that based on this study and others, it's very safe. As far as the efficacy of ivermectin, they point out that it's less effective than permethrin, so topical permethrin, if it's used as a single dose, but it's comparable if you do the double dose like we normally do. They also point out a recent study in which oral ivermectin was used to treat treat head lice at a dose of 400 micrograms per kilogram, so kind of double the normal recommended dose, which did not result in any adverse events in children, 54 children who are less than five years. So I think this is probably our second article on this podcast where we discuss um, the safety of ivermectin in general. We had another one where we discussed um, that population was treated with uh, population of Fiji treated with scabies treated with ivermectin for scabies because it was such a problem there, and all of those people did fine, and it was a very effective treatment. So I've got less lower threshold to use ivermectin. And the only real problem I feel with using it in little kids and babies is that it's still not FDA approved. So if yeah. there is some kind of problem, even if it's not related to the ivermectin, if somebody blames it on you, you're going to be on potentially shaky ground. So I guess yeah. you could use this article as evidence that it's a good idea. And I may have said that this was out of pediatric dermatology. It's actually out of the British Journal of Dermatology and just says pediatric dermatology on top, <laughs> presumably mm-hmm. because it's a pediatric dermatology related article. Uh, and if you're interested in our other podcast where we talked about ivermectin in Fiji, that was in episode five.
1: Okay, so we have one last article. So this last article is patient preferences and comparative outcomes regarding cryosurgery versus electrodesiccation in the removal of truncal seborrheic keratoses. So the authors, um, Elizabeth uh, Elizabeth Ethington and Kristen lee et al in the journal of clinical and aesthetic dermatology address the question of which of these modalities is going to lead to better patient satisfaction and also which one is going to lead to better cosmesis they go into the fact that separate keratoses are very common they impact about 83 million americans and most people will get them as they get go along in life as they grow up um, these are not harmful lesions, but they tend to bother people cosmetically, and there is an altered balance between self-proliferation and loss in separate keratoses. so they have lower op- apoptosis rate than normal skin, which leads them to accumulate thickness and color. Sometimes they itch, sometimes they bother people, but as the boomer generation is reaching the age where SKs are more common, there's a lot of these lesions around to be treated, especially as those patients would like to maintain a youthful appearance. So, you know, there's limited literature regarding what kind of treatment is superior. There are case reports of the use of diclofenac gel, imiquimod, um, acetretin, and debisylate calcitriol. In the management of K- uh, SKs, cryotherapy, curatage, and ablative lasers have also been used. So there was one comparative study looking at the use of cryotherapy versus curatage, and patients preferred cryotherapy to curatage, even despite higher pain levels with cryotherapy due to cosmetic outcome and decreased wound care responsibilities with cryo versus curatage. So cryotherapy in this previous study came out on top of curatage. So they wanted to also kind of refresh our knowledge that cryotherapy has been also compared to erbium-yag laser and that erbium-yag laser had better post-treatment cosmesis and faster healing rates than cryotherapy. They go into a little bit, the use of 40% hydrogen peroxide solution, which has been approved for the treatment of SKs, and that this treatment does work well, especially in patients of color, sometimes leaving fewer um, areas in patients with Fitzpatrick type 5 skin or higher um, with fewer post-treatment pigmentary alterations. But I believe that that particular product has gone off the market, if I'm correct about that. The Escada Um, thing? Yeah, the Escada. Yeah, I think Uh, it's gone. So I don't know if somebody's going to bring that back or not. It worked for some people. Some people really liked it. Others found it too expensive to use. Um, They also talk about a novel aqueous solution with nitric acid, zinc, copper salts, and organic acids that showed clearing response of seborrheic keratosis lesions after three applications per lesion on average. This treatment was done about every two weeks. I actually pulled the study as well. It was pretty interesting. Um, This was a paper out of Italy about treating seborrheic keratosis. But in this individual paper, they wanted to look at Specifically, cryosurgery versus electrodesiccation. So they took thirty-three adults, and they had them each volunteer two of the separate keratosis for treatment. They randomized right versus left, going to to either electrodesiccation or cryotherapy in a one-to-one ratio, so they would have
0: even distribution, which they pretty much achieved.
1: And I they included... can
0: imagine the little seborrheic keratosis going, "I volunteer! Yeah. I volunteer! Yeah. as I volunteer tribute! tribute
1: Touch me the electrodesiccation <laughs> wand!" Anyway. So for the lesions that were treated with electrodesiccation, they did clean and anesthetize those. And then they used a fine-tipped monopolar electrode set to 3 to 6 until they got gray char and crusting. And then the char was left in place as a natural wound dressing versus liquid nitrogen spray for 10 seconds or less by a handheld device to ensure complete freezing within the boundaries of the lesion. And then those were then dressed with hydrocolloid dressing with duoderm. Um, so I did find it interesting that the patients who had cryotherapy had a duoderm, and the patients who had electrodesiccation just had the lesion left in place. I don't know if that affected the outcome or, or not. Also, um,
0: the ones that were electrodesicated were anesthetized with lidocaine beforehand.
1: Right. So there was a little bit of a difference in protocol side to side there. Um, the patients were then asked to assess their pain. Not surprisingly, the lesions that had been anesthetized prior to electrodesiccation had a little bit less pain than the ones that were treated with cryotherapy, but it wasn't terrible. They also had a blinded physician rate the color of the lesions and the texture of the lesions and the effectiveness of removal on a three-point scale, which would be effective, partially effective, or um, not effective. And then they did six-week follow-ups and looked at the different groups. And basically, the nuts and bolts of it is that the cosmesis was pretty much the same, with the exception that more patients in the electrodesiccation side of the treated lesion had hyperpigmentation specifically, um, and that... The pain outcomes were the same, and the patients pretty much didn't have a clear preference of cryotherapy to Um They did point out that the majority of their patients treated were Caucasian, so you know, 90 per, 97% were non-Hispanic white, and 70% were female. So the generalizability of this study is something that they point out at the end of the article, like good art, like good authors. Um, they did also point out that even though there was again, we're gonna you're gonna not like this, but there was a trend towards. More hyperpigmentation with electrodesiccation, but
0: it wasn't statistically significant. So, so a trend something. means there wasn't any.
1: <laughs> so something maybe to pay attention to, um, you know. So I think that they, in this study, showed that most patients with Fitzpatrick type one or two skin. Um, are going to have relatively equal preference between electrodesiccation and cryotherapy and that that's not really um, going to necessarily affect their cosmesis. They were both successful similarly in the treatment of SEBs with less post-inflammatory was well, potentially less post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation with electrodissection, although not statistically significant. So personally, how I choose to treat seborrheic keratoses, most of the time I freeze them for a lot of reasons, but the the most simple reason is it's faster and less messy and takes less resources. However, if a patient's had treatment failure with cryotherapy or if a lesion's very, very thick, I do think they're often a little bit more successfully treated with electrodesiccation.
0: And its I think it's helpful for us to know that about 80% of them were thought to be treated successfully. And it's good to know those rates. I thought we were a little bit better than 80%, but mm-hmm. uh, there we go. Yeah, some people maybe just aren't coming back and bothering about it. So, All right, listeners, good job sticking with us to the point where we have our long-awaited guest on, and or good job fast-forwarding to this point. <laughs> so here is our guest. Our guest today is Chris. Thank you so much for joining us. Do you want to start by introducing yourself?
2: Yeah, sure thing. So um, I'm Chris Syed. I'm at University of North Carolina, uh, Department of Dermatology, and I've been on the faculty here for about five or six years now um, and did all my training at UNC and undergraduate training and stuff too. And so I've been here for a long time. uh, And after joining the faculty for uh, about a year or two in, uh, I started sort of specifically developing an HS clinic, um, which was pretty easy because if you tell people that yeah, uh, That you're willing to see all their HS patients, they are very quick to send them to you. And so I've been able to very quickly build a, a large practice um, with hydratinitis patients. And uh, it's an area where there's just a huge need for more evidence and study. So I've gotten into to trying to um, help learn, learn more about the disease along the way, too.
0: Well, we appreciate you doing that. I do consider HS kind of an underserved condition in dermatology. I feel like we have other conditions that I would argue are a little overserved right now. So maybe we need to reallocate some of our resources.
2: I would not argue with you there.
0: And you were the senior author in an article that we discussed in our last episode, episode 13, about using intralesional triamcinolone for HS lesions. And the, I'm just going to sort of summarize it here. It looks like you tried ILK40, ILK10, and then just normal saline. And all three of those study arms, or all three of those study arm pits, I should say, uh, had similar <laughs> results.
2: Exactly yeah and definitely it's it's you know confusing results in a lot of ways I, you know we did it very much just saying that you know there are so many things we do for HS and this is true in dermatology in general that just have don't have good evidence even though they're kind of standard practice and we figured like why don't we just figure if uh, figure out if you know kenalog 40 the higher concentration is maybe a little more effective than kenalog 10 just to guide people on how they would do it and we should have a placebo group at the same time because really we've never you know determined efficacy in the past of how well it actually works and it'd be nice to know that You know, some patients clinically seem to love it and they come in asking for it. And there are others who really hate it and and never want you to come near them with a needle again. Um, And there is some pain involved. And so, you know, if you're going to do something that puts a patient through kind of a tough experience, it's nice to know how much it helps and, and, you know, how reliable it is and the best way to do it. So we very much expected that we'd see, you know, differences between the overall uh, triamcinolone groups versus the normal saline group. Um, You know, surprisingly, there was not a huge difference, actually. Um, And I'm still... You know, not a hundred percent sure how to explain it. I've got my, you know, my theories, um, but yeah, ultimately a little bit of a surprise.
0: And now that you've done the study and have discovered that, has it affected the way you treat your patients?
2: Yeah, so I mean, I, you know, I think uh, it'd be easy to ask the question like, all right, if if I believe it, I should never inject anybody with Kinelog again, and and I certainly do. Again, there are a lot of patients who, you know, feel like it's helpful. And I think, you know, we had overall 60 lesions in the study. You know, we could do up to three lesions for each patient. And we tried to focus on lesions that were two centimeters or less and that were relatively newly inflamed. We didn't want things that have been inflamed kind of nonstop for a long time, or just a large draining sinus or a big abscess. And we tried to, you know, again, put it, you know, in, in relatively confined lesions to be able to track those individual lesions well. Um, and so I, so still sometimes I do because, again, there are variations, I think, in how people do it in real life. We did 0.1 cc um, of each of those things because we just wanted, didn't want to get to sort of overall larger doses that might have a field effect or a systemic effect. If you take a vial of Kenalog 40 and inject it all over somebody's armpit, in the end, you're giving them 40 milligrams of triamcinolone pretty much. Um, so we limited some of what we did, but that means that maybe we don't reflect what happens in real life sometimes, um, so it may be that, that it's helpful still for certain patients, you know, and had we done, you know, 120 lesions instead of 60, we would have started to see those differences come out a little bit. Um, or it might be that, you know, small variations in technique, you know, would make it helpful for certain patients. So I don't say no to patients who feel like it'd be helpful, um, and I still offer it occasionally in situations, but I definitely don't, you know, sort of, I think, push it as strongly as I would have beforehand, you know, where it's like if a patient comes in, I can tell them with certainty, this will make you a whole lot better for sure if we do it. So I think the amount that I, uh, the, uh, you know, uh, you know, frequency with which I use it has gone down a fair bit, but it's not something where I think there it's, it's a useless or, or futile treatment. You know, my real hope is that somebody else comes along and does another study that sort of shows us the right way to do it and, and optimizes it. Um, so hopefully there'll be will for, for somebody else to do that at some point.
0: Why does it have to be somebody else? You guys seem pretty good <laughs> at it.
2: That's true. Yeah, we could do it, you know, maybe, I, and I could be just, you know, very bad at injecting interlesional kinolog and that's why the study failed. But, um, but yeah, maybe at some point we could, you know, come up with a new protocol. I mean, you know, these kind of studies, you know, you know, to get funding for this kind of a study, this is kind of in general for any kind of old medicines like this, but it is, you know, a huge time commitment, effort commitment. And, you know, I had a, a fellow at that point that was sort of helping to spearhead to some extent. And so we could do a, a follow-up study at some point where we change things. Um, you know, I feel like if we fall into a situation where it shows the same result, you know, it would be nice if, if in a different center, It was either verified that it didn't work out the right way. Um, You know, it's nice to be able to have that the results more broadly applicable than just a single center repeating the same study over and over again. But we may come up with a way to vary it at some point or develop it across a few centers and and, and try to sort of get that same uh, broader perspective.
0: Have you changed the strength that you use? So
2: do you just use ILK10 now? Um, you know, typically, actually, I still use kind Kenalog- it, it kind of depends on how much I'm doing. If I'm only treating a few lesions, I'll typically um, do Kenalog 40. If it's, if I'm doing, you know, where somebody wants me to do a whole bunch, I'll sometimes back off on that. Because again, if you use a CC of Kenalog 40, and people keep coming in to get it, you're giving them a lot of steroid over time. Um, so I do try to just think about the overall dose I give. Um, but I figure if, if 0.1 CC of Kenalog 40 wasn't enough. Um, you know, I may be like a little more heavy handed on just the one or two lesions I treat now. i just trying to help increase the overall amount that I'm delivering. You know, the, the, one of the sort of big take homes from the study was that like, you know, all the patients got better in every group, right? Or they all had decreasing pain over the course of days and all had, if you looked at their satisfaction rates, just asking how satisfied they were with the treatment, they were all pretty satisfied. And it's possible that, you know, the normal saline, just, you know, the needle puncturing the wound. Instilling something that sort of expanded it a little bit helped it maybe resolve a tiny bit faster. So it's possible that all the groups did a little something. You know, the idea has been raised a few times that if we use bacteriostatic saline, that there's benzyl alcohol in there, and that might have a, have a, sort of a, a confusing effect. But these were single dose vials; they weren't bacteriostatic. It was really just pure saline, and so I don't think that's what it was. But maybe just that physical manipulation is what helped. Um, but it also makes me leery of other studies too, where there's no no placebo group. You know, there's been, like, one study of using resource and peels, um, you know, which showed improvement in patients generally liking the treatment, but there was no control arm, just like in another prospective study that had been done in Kenalog before that showed improvement in all the patients, but there was no control there. Um, and, and we know that even in, like, the, the you know, Pioneer studies at out, there were 25% placebo response rates, and response rates higher than that have been reported for other things, so... It's just the importance of having a control arm, you know, when something really has no you know, baseline evidence, I think is really important um, when it's feasible, at least. Um, but yeah, it's just it's, it's, it's hard to know like why the patients like the normal saline so much.
0: Speaking of some of these previous studies, it looks like you were also the co-chair of the North American Clinical Management Guidelines for H.S., which was a series of articles that came out out of the JAD that, again, we reviewed in this podcast, and that was in episode five. And one of the things that struck me from those articles was um, indeed the number of these trials that didn't really have control groups or placebo groups.
2: Yeah, I'm with you on that. I mean, that was like, I think one of the things that when we were doing that Kenalog study, it was part of our motivation is that if you go and try to assess evidence, you know, the same evidence has been assessed many times in many different ways in different review articles and stuff, but there's very little primary evidence out there in HS. And now the drug companies are developing new drugs there. The new stuff is going to have evidence, you know, but even if you look at like, you know, doxycycline, you know, there's almost nothing out there about those things, even though those are probably the most used treatments. Um, so guidelines are nice because they hopefully provide some advice on, on how to treat things. But One of the other uses of them is that they point out, you know, where a lack of evidence exists um, and highlights the need for sort of research and and sort of points uh, people in the direction of where maybe we could do some of these basic studies.
0: Well, I expect that our listeners are excited to have an HS expert on the line right now. Is there any final thoughts or pro tips you want to give about treating patients with this condition?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, I think most people consider, you know, this, you know, a challenging disease to treat. It is definitely, you know, something that has a lot of ups and downs and and there's urgent needs from patients, Um, you know, but I think this is where, you know, if we look back at our first day medical school and we think about the patient, you know, what what our motivations were and wanting to take care of sick patients, I think these are the the patients who, like you said, at the beginning need it the most and have gotten some of the littlest attention over time. Um, And so, uh, you know, so, you know, taking the sort of extra time and effort on these patients, even though it um, is probably more complicated than than a lot of the other things we do, I think it it can really pay off if you, um, you, know, uh, you know, make a big effort to take good care of the patients and that's whether it's with medications, you know, being available for, you know, sort of urgent procedures sometimes that are necessary. And then this, I think, you know, I, I talk a lot about uh, surgery and HS and its role and it's not what everybody needs, but that can make a huge difference for patients with HS, whether you could uh, to sort of develop some skills to do some basic procedures like some on roofings um, or just try to make sure you, you build strong relationships with your local surgeons um, and really try to, to, um, you know, get their, their sort of, uh, you know, input and their buy-in on trying to manage these patients too and, and, and doing it together because they want, they want help, you know, from a dermatologist that can kind of be the quarterback a lot of times. And they're happy to sometimes do the surgery as long as they feel like they've got help doing everything else.
0: From my limited experience, um, I think it's important to remember that HS just really sucks. It's a really terrible disease to have, you know, for your whole life. And that if you can take some ownership of it and um, do some of these procedures and so on, that you can, the patient can get significantly better, which is very satisfying for them, but also immensely satisfying for you taking care of them and being able to be the person to help them.
2: Yeah, I, I totally agree. Is, uh, the diseases we treat, I think if we you know, line up a list of our sort of 10 diseases we least like to have that are relatively common, I think H.S. pretty much my life would, would be hugely different right now had I developed HS in my teen years and, and had to, you know, have that as something to deal with. On, not, not that patients with HS can't be successful, but I think just in terms of how it impacts, you know, your relationships over time and, um, you know, ability to, to succeed. And, and, you know, in some areas it can, it can be a, a big obstacle for some people.
0: Well, Dr. Syed, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate you taking the time to join us here on Dermosphere.
2: I appreciate you having me. Thanks for uh, taking some time to talk about HS.
0: So thanks again to Dr. Syed for agreeing to come on the show. So today we learned about hyaluronidase and we've got a, we just need to keep injecting it every hour until things get better. 450 IU's for every size of tissue. That's half of the upper cutaneous lip. We talked about medical overuse and how the things we can do include reducing the rate of misdiagnosis of cellulitis and maybe not excising dysplastic nevi, among other things. We learned that partial biopsies for melanomas are probably okay. We learned that ivermectin seems to be safe in kiddos of one, or, um, sorry, four kilograms or greater and one month or older, at least um, if they're French kiddos. And we learned that cryotherapy and electrodesiccation are roughly similar in the treatment of seborrheic keratoses. And we learned from Dr. Syed about hydradenitis superativa. Thanks so much for joining us, guys. Um, You can see us on the internet at dermospherepodcast.com, where you can access our entire archive. And you can also see pictures of me and Michelle. You can (laughs) send us um, emails and other communications that say, take down those pictures. They're horrible. (laughs) Michelle, um, do you have a social media update for us?
1: Yes, so we're trying to post the 10 um, hot points or hot takes out of each of our um, podcasts and put those on our Twitter and Facebook. I am slowly learning how to use Instagram, which is very visual. So maybe we can put some of the figures um, on the Instagram, although I think we might have to get author permission for that. So we're looking into the feasibility of Instagramming. So for right now, most of our presence is going to be on Facebook and Twitter. But look for us in the social media sphere and communicate with us if you have an article you'd like us to review
0: so our twitter handle is dermosphere podcast that's exactly right and facebook as well and of course we are dermosphere on apple itunes or stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts where you can subscribe so you don't miss a single episode such as the next one which we will be giving to you next time